1 John 2, we'll read a few verses there, and then one verse in James chapter 4. John's first epistle, chapter 2, we'll begin the reading at verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now back to James 4, the last half of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. May God bless the reading of his word for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads for a moment, please, in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, ere we turn to the, the book and began to preach from it, we confess our need of thy power. The Holy Spirit has been given that we might be energized to do the work of the Lord, that we might work according to his working in us. And we ask now, our God, that thou wilt settle our hearts and our heads. May we be focused on the truth that's before us, deal with the Depths, attempts of the devil to inject himself into the meeting, into our thinking. We pray against him in Christ's name. We ask our God that we will know what it is to feel the power of thy truth, sanctifying our souls today. In answer to the prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. We're returning this Lord's Day morning to the Christian's pursuit of holiness. What has taken our attention to this point on that subject is this matter of resisting the devil so that he would flee from us. The word flee, I think, should be circled or underscored in every believer's Bible. Since the Word of God describes those who end up in heaven as overcomers, and especially since it says in reference to Satan that they overcame him, then how the devil is defeated and how he is made to flee should be of the utmost interest to any Christian wanting to pursue a life of holiness wanting to pursue a life of likeness to Christ, who was the greatest overcomer of Satan that ever walked the face of the earth. It's part of that desire to be like Jesus. Jesus overcame, and we will be overcomers. Certainly Satan is dead earnest about overcoming us. Every day of every week of every month of every year of every decade. Therefore, 
It only makes sense that we should be dead in earnest about overcoming him. He's not about to play games. This is not fun and games to him. He might lead you to think you can play with sin, but he is never playing. He is dead in earnest, and we must be dead in earnest as well. I remind you of, I'm sure you know, the oft-repeated dictum of Martin Luther. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. There is no stronger or deadlier foe that we have to face outside of ourselves than this prince of the power of the air, the one who is the ruler of the darkness of this world, who roams on the earth as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So to that end, to that end, we have turned our attention to the tactics that he uses to war against the Christian, to stop his endeavors to be holy. If he's going to be resisted and made to flee, then the more we understand about his strategies, the better equipped we will be to oppose him and to stand against the wiles of the devil and to live and to worship in the beauty of holiness. Any nation that goes to war with another nation seeks to understand as much as they can about the enemy and the enemy's tactics that makes them better equipped to go into battle against them. And it's the same thing when it comes to Christian warfare. We need to understand the approaches he takes to fight against us in our desire to, to please the Lord. The particular area under consideration just now is how, how Satan works and wars to lead us to disobey the word of God. That's the essence of unholy living. It's not obeying. Obeying is holiness. Obeying God's word is holy living. Disobeying is unholy. And so the efforts he takes to lead us to disobey the word of God so that we fall short of the chief reason why we're here in this world in the first place, and that's to glorify God and to enjoy him. And Satan knows that the effect of sin, of disobedience, is to dishonor God and to leave us miserable. Sin produces guilt, and guilt is misery. We're unhappy. And when we're unhappy because of sin, our lights aren't shining brightly. And we're not glorifying the Lord, dishonoring Him. And the devil is glad. It's how he goes about leading us to sin that we began to consider last evening. In a word, it's temptation. That's his chief tactic, temptation. I made the statement then, and I make it again this morning, the devil's chief tool to attempt the believer to sin against God, to disobey the Lord's word, is the world. That's his chief tempting tool, the world. It's most interesting that the words of our text in James 4 are in the context, the context of the effects that this very tactic was having on the churches to whom he wrote. 
We didn't take the time this morning to read the preceding verses, but when you do, you find that the Lord's people, I underscore the Lord's people, were fighting among themselves. Anger, jealousy, envy, bitterness, even hatred. That's the reference to ye kill. He's not referring to you. We're actually taking life. But hatred is synonymous in the word of God with murder. It's a heart sin. Ye kill. And that's anything but holiness. Anything but glorifying God and enjoy him, enjoying him. And the reason why all of this was going on was because of what? Their lusts. James actually uses three different Greek words to describe that lust that was in them, causing all this trouble amongst them. I mean, here was a church that was supposed to be living in harmony and happiness together, working together, but they were at odds and there was bitter words and harsh words and hurt feelings and brother against brother and sister against sister. Why? Lusts. He uses three different words. You only see the word lust here, but there's three there in the original text. Verse 2, lusts. That word means longing for or craving something. Again, desire. Burn with zeal. And in the end of verse 3, lust occurs again. This time it means desire for pleasure. It was a lusting congregation or congregations to whom he was writing. It's in that context that James now says, chapter 4, verse 4, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's the context of the world. It was the lust of the world that lay at the root of their trouble and all this disobedience, this unholiness among the people of God. Satan attempted them and ensnared them to such a degree that they didn't even realize that the way they were living made them look like the enemy of God. They didn't even realize it. Know ye not? Do you not see how you're living? Do you not get it? You are living like a worldling, and that's why you're having all this trouble? Sin is very deceptive. That's why he calls them, by the way, adulterers and adulteresses. They weren't actually engaging in literal adultery. They were having an illicit love affair with the world. That's the idea in the text. They were being unfaithful to God and their Savior. Spiritual adultery. It is this sad fact about Satan's tremendous ability to lead Christ's people into sin through the lust of the world that brought us to John's statement Last night in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, which is, I think, one of the fullest statements you'll find anywhere in the New Testament on what this term world means, or the world. 
Christians are told, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Well, you'll remember that the only thing I sought to do was to define our terms last night. Because he who defines his terms wins. That's so critical. Define your terms. And if we're going to understand what the world is, what the lust of the world is, we've got to find out what the word world actually means in, in Scripture. Satan uses the world to seduce God's people away from this path of obedience to his word, leads them to forbidden territory where God says we're not to go. But Satan knows just how to push the buttons, to bring the temptations, to get us to go into forbidden territory, to get us to sin and dishonor the Lord, and then we're miserable and we're not enjoying him. He's a master at working the system. Christians, therefore, are not to be worldly. Their way of living, their conduct, how they think, how they talk, how they dress, how they respond, should not be described by the word worldly. That's what was going on in these churches to whom James was writing his epistle. Therefore, it's critical that we are clear in our understanding of what both James and John are referring to when they describe the, the world. Not only will it prevent us from having, as I said last night, un unbiblical views of worldliness, and we'll call something worldly when it's not worldly, and we will fail to see something that we're engaged in actually is worldliness. And we think it's okay. Because our understanding of worldliness is not biblical. It's beyond the Scriptures. What, what is the world? As I said last night, it's in its very broadest sense, it's the New Testament term that refers to that organized system of fallen humanity, humanity that's ruled by the prince of this world, the devil. That organized system of fallen humanity that is ruled by the prince of this world, the prince of the darkness, and that's Satan. That's the world. It is the world that lives as if God does not exist. There is no God. That's the world statement. It is the world that has rejected God, that wants absolutely nothing to do with God and has rebelled against them. And those who are, quote, of the world, unquote, have no thought of God, but only think in terms of this world and their life in this world, which is governed by their lusts, by their natural instincts and desires. That's a worldling. Perhaps the best way to sum up what the New Testament means when it uses that term world, it is everything in this world that is opposed to God. That really just encapsulates what we're talking about. Everything, whether it's out there, whether it's in here, whether it's in your home, in your heart, it's everything that's actually 
opposed to God. Figuring that out, what that is, actually, as I was texting with a brother yesterday, involves a lot of honesty on our part. It involves being truthful with ourselves. I say that because often is the case, more often than not, we know when something is opposing God in our lives. We know that it's a hindrance to our walk with the Lord. But we just don't want to be honest with ourselves. Because it has to do with this lust, this desire that's so strong. We don't want to face it. And we don't want to give up the idol that's there opposing the Lord in our lives. It all comes back to our chief end in life. What's this all about? The world is anything and everything that tries to prevent us from fulfilling that chief end. So the prince of this world comes to us with the things of this world in order to us to live as if as if what as if if, if as if God doesn't exist. I mean, that's what happens when, you know, you and I fall prey to temptation. We're acting like God's not there. He doesn't see it. It's not not phasing him. As if the real enjoyment in life comes from setting our affection on the things of the world. That's what he does. So... Just how does Satan go about his goal to lead us into sin, to disobeying the word of God, and particularly to get us to love the world and its things? Number one, the devil seeks to convince us that the world is our friend and not our enemy. He seeks to convince us that the world is our friend and not our enemy. I make that deduction from those two words of John Love not the world. Here is the apostle telling Christians, love not, don't love the world. Now the tense of that particular Greek verb can result in two different translations. Number one, either stop loving the world or do not have the habit of loving the world. Either way, it's written to Christians. There would be no need for the Holy Spirit to give that prohibition if Christians were not prone to love the world. But why so? How is the devil so effective in tempting Christians to love that which is so against God, which is so contrary to his word, which is so evil and so satanic, if you will, You would never count someone a friend of yours who broke into your home, ravaged your wife, cut the throat of your children. You'd never count them as a friend. They would be an enemy. If you were warned that such a thing 
might just happen, you would take every precaution to see that your family was safe and secure from this enemy. But you see, one of the most subtle and most successful methods that criminals have used has been creating the illusion that they were the friend of the very people they were going to rob. They befriend them. And then they're brought into their trust. And the guard is let down. And they're the ones that actually do the damage. They would have never brought them into their home if they were convinced that they were their enemies. But they're duped, they're deceived into thinking, well, they're, they're a friend. The devil uses the same tactic. He tempts us through that same tactic to convince us we can sin against God and his law and be unholy. He comes and presents the world to our minds as something that is good. It's okay. In fact, it's actually, you need this. In fact, you really need this and you can't do without it if you don't have it. Something that is, you know, those terms, that's got to be our friend. It's not against us. It's something that, that, that kind of friendship that we can actually enjoy and, and benefit from it. He has the bold-facedness to come and tempt us with that. It's a lie. But how many of you have fallen for the lie? Would you raise your hands? I'm only saying We fall for it. And we've fallen for it time and time again. It's an opposition to God and his word. And yet we treat it as if it's something we just got to have. And we must have it at all costs. And we can't get rid of it. It's doing us good. All the while it's harming us. All the while. So the temptation, because he finds within us a willingness, a a willingness to believe a lie. He comes to the temptation to love the world, to desire the world, since the world is not an enemy that is to be hated and fought against with all our being. Come back to what James was writing. Do you not know That to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy with God? Do you not understand you are in an illicit affair with the world through all your lust and desires for it? So what is it to do this forbidden thing that the devil tempts us to do to lead us into sin? What is it to love the world? And therefore, how can we recognize worldliness? First, to love the world is to esteem the world. When you love something or someone, you hold that thing or that person in high regard. 
You put great value upon them. Those who love the world place great value on its opinions, its, its judgments, its acceptance, its attitudes, its value systems. It's really held in high esteem. A little sidebar here just to give a little light on what I'm talking about. All the craze, I guess maybe the last five years, I don't know because I didn't, I don't track it. It seems in uh, apparel, particularly in jeans, is to wear jeans that have holes in them. Everywhere you go, you see the, they're all over the place. I, when I was a kid, you had holes in your jeans. Your mom got a patch from the store and she ironed it on and covered it up. Do you not see the insanity of paying $100 for a pair of jeans that's full of holes? It is insanity, folks. It's, it's ludicrous. But why is it done? Because the world says... This is fashion. This is what's acceptable. It doesn't matter how much skin it shows, but this is what it is to be cool. And if you're not dressing in the latest style, and that's just one of them, if you're not dressing in the latest style, you're just not hip. Maybe that's an old-fashioned word, but you all get what I mean by that. You're just not in line, and the world's going to reject you. Why else? Why else would you actually go around wearing jeans with holes all in them? But no one seems to stop to think like that. Oh, yeah, you're just, you're a legalist. Really? Forget about Christianity. Just wearing a a pair of tattered jeans and paying $100 or more for that, you tell me who's insane. Tell me. Or, another example, here's this, this T-shirt, this polo that's maybe worth $10, but they put a little logo here, and now it's worth $75. Because of a logo, you tell me that's not crazy? But what's the driving force behind it? Because when they see you wearing this shirt that has the logo or the word, whatever it happens to be, You're cool. You've got money. You're in fashion. I mean, let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Let's just be honest. Here's where truthfulness comes in. This is what it's about. And the devil has pulled the wool over so many Christians' eyes. And all the excuses start running out. He's a master. At getting us to desire the things of this world. To love the world is to have a high regard for the things of the world and little to no regard for the things of God. Let's get more biblical here for a second. When those wedding invitations were given out in Luke 14, 
There were those who refused to come to the wedding. Why? Well, because they held their farms and their oxen and their wives and the things of this world in higher regard than they did the wedding, the things of God. In Luke chapter 16, Christ said, That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. It's abomination. It's a stench to him. He hates it. And Christians fall prey to the devil's temptation to love the world, to lust after, to desire. They will value the approval of the world more than they will value the approval of God. And that's just being honest. We value the approval of men more than the approval of the Lord. They'll have a higher regard for temporal treasures than they do for heavenly treasures. They'll work and work and work to lay up for themselves treasures on earth, but don't put a whole lot of energy into laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. And the Lord, the Lord Jesus was very plain about that, wasn't he? Brother, wasn't he, sister? Couldn't get much plainer. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Is that what we're doing? Is that our main goal in life? To spend our best efforts in laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. They will seek to conform themselves to the fashion of this world, even though the Lord has said, the fashion of this world, it passes away. And we know it does. It just keeps changing and changing and changing. They are plagued with worldliness when they esteem and crave the approval of those around them and will avoid looking foolish or being rejected for their Christian faith. That is esteeming the world. And Satan is always out for you to esteem the world more than you do the things of God. Secondly, we love the world when our thoughts are fixed on this world, fixed on it. You think a whole lot about the one you love or the thing you love. David, in one, Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. He was being dead honest. He's writing under inspiration. He says, I meditate on thy word all the day. Why does he do that? Because he loves it. It was filling his mind. We've been ensnared by the devil. We've been duped. If we find that the vast majority of our thoughts are taken up with the pleasures and the pursuits and the prosperity of this world. Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 Paul describes those who are the enemies of the cross as those who, I'm going to quote him now, who mind earthly things. That word means they set their mind, they fix their mind on earthly things. You compare that with Christ's words in Matthew chapter, with, to, to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. What did he tell him? Peter, the, the apostle, get thee behind me, Satan. You're acting just like the devil. Why? For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That word savorest means mindest. 
You mind the things of men and not the things of God. If this was a very real danger for the Christian, Paul would never have to write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your affection, the word there is mind, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. You see, the love of the heart is what fills the heart. What you love, you think about. Which leads me to note in the third place, we love the world when we spend the bulk or the best of our time and energy on and about the things of the world. Love, you know, is not just this feeling. Love in Scripture is always action. God so loved the world that he gave. Love must act. Our thoughts and our desires for things must give vent to expression. We're going to, by our life, by our, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So by our life, we're going to act out what we love. We're going to show what we really love. And we show our love for something by doing whatever we can to be with it. You remember those early courtship days? Anything and everything you could to do to be with the one you loved, you did. If you couldn't actually be there physically, I for one was willing to have a $100 a month phone bill to talk to the one that I was in love with because I couldn't be with her. 100 bucks back in 1980 was a lot of money. It's, it's understandable. When you love the world, it shows itself. It's got to. Loving something of this world, it's got to spend time with it. We look for opportunity to get with the things of the world when we're loving the world. We labor for the meat that perishes. Fourthly, when we love the world, we become upset and dejected when we don't get the things of the world that we want or when we lose them. It really rattles our cage. It bothers us. We're troubled by it. When we lose something or someone that we love, we mourn because that which we love is gone. A man who is in love with the world will lament when the things of this world are taken from him. Or when he cannot get the things that he so badly craves in the world. He's not happy. Because his love is not being fulfilled. Here's what the devil is after to tempt us to love the world and forsake God when what God desires is that we love him and forsake the world. Don't love the world. You love me and you forsake the world. The devil says, no, love the world and forsake God. That's our option. That's how he works. Secondly, the devil uses the world outside of us to tempt the world that's inside of us. 
All that is in the world. So John says, verse 17, all that is in the world. All that the world lives for, all that which those who love the world value and esteem the most, all that which makes for their aim and purpose in life. And John characterizes all that is in the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now here's another term we have to stop and define, lust. There's nothing inherently wrong with with the word itself, lust. It simply means to desire, to crave, to long for. In Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples at the Passover, and he said unto them, with desire, it's the same word, lust. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I crave it, I've longed for it. Philippians 1.23, Paul said about whether he was going to go to heaven or be on the earth, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. I long, I crave to be with Christ, which is far better. It's the same word translated lust here. The problem comes in for the Christian when the thing that he desires and longs for is of the world. It's the object of the lust. It's the object of the desire that he's craving that's the problem. By of the world, I mean that the desire and the thing desired is characteristic of the attitudes and the actions of those who belong to this wicked world. The desire and the object being desired may be something very legitimate in and of itself. Our text doesn't say, use not the world. It says, love not the world. In fact, it's perfectly all right for Christians to use the world. What the Lord forbids is the abuse of the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, he's referring to Christians who use this world, but not abusing it. It's okay to use the world. You just don't abuse it. God's people are not being worldly when they use the world. The wicked of this world produce clothes and delicious food and shelter and medicine and things for our protection and things for our enjoyment. It's good to use those things. The problem comes in. The problem comes in when we use it to excess. When what it provides becomes what we really live for. When we must have it, pretty much at all costs, the thing that it supplies us. Now we're abusing the world and now we're acting worldly. We're acting just like the world. It's perfectly lawful in the eyes of God to desire nothing wrong with wanting nice clothes. The world provides them. But when your world and your life becomes absorbed with buying clothes, however modest they may be, and having to wear the latest fashion, it becomes a worldly lust. You've now gone to abusing and stopped using the world. I understand, I don't 
get it, but I understand that women like shoes. But when I see a closet and there are 50 to 100 pair of shoes, I got a problem with that. No woman needs 50 to 100 pair of shoes. Listen to the silence. Wouldn't you call that abusing? It's, it's good to have shoes and you know, to be able to change out shoes. See, I don't know how many shoes you have in your closet, so I'm safe, right? I've just seen it before. Why so many? I was in a fellow believer's home, not a close friend, but doing some work for somebody, and there were 30 suits hanging in the closet. And they weren't outdated, just 30 suits. There were boxes full of brand new shirts, must have been 20, besides the ones, all the ones that were hanging on the closet. That's... It's going a bit overboard. I've got to have all this. This is, this is not enough. I need more and more and more. It's okay to desire food. I can smell it here today. But that desire for food can become gluttony. When a desire to provide for your family turns into a preoccupation with being wealthy, when you are laboring to be wealthy, and the Word of God plainly says, labor not to be rich. It says that. It's as clear as thou shalt not kill. Labor not, do not labor in order to be rich. If the Lord blesses whatever you do and gives you wealth, hallelujah, praise his name. But it should not be a goal in the lives of God's people to be rich. Whatever justification, and I've heard Christians make them, well, I can really help the church out. It doesn't, it doesn't countermand what's plainly written there. Do not work to be rich. When you have a greater desire to stay home and watch a football game on Sunday or a Super Bowl game than you do of being in the house of God to worship the Lord. When you know more about the characters of Hollywood than you do the characters of the Bible. When you can rattle off every sports team and the players on the teams far more easily than you can rattle off the books of the Bible. then you know that you have abused the world and not using it. You have every reason to suspect that you have been seduced by the temptations of the devil to love the world. When it becomes that which controls our hearts and our minds and our actions, when it comes in between us and God, 
Then it's what Paul calls worldly lusts. John calls worldly lusts. And James says, you're having a love affair with the world. And you're an adulterer or an adulteress. And it's wrong. At that point in time, what may be a legitimate desire becomes a false god that we worship, and that is worldly. And that is why the devil is constantly tempting us, putting these lusts before our eyes. He has a goal in mind. He knows what it will do if we succumb. He's enjoyed much success in tempting the Christian to sin because he knows that there is a world within us. Oh, there is a world without us. But he knows there's a world on the inside. It's what Paul calls the flesh in Romans 7. So James, back in the first chapter, he speaks of that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The devil can't make you sin. That's impossible. But oh, he knows how to appeal to that world within our hearts. That flesh, evil desires. He knows what comes along with it. And so he's always trying to get us to do something which God says no. Don't go down that path. Here's the path before you. It's a path of righteousness. It's a path of holiness. This is the world. This is my kingdom. Finally, the world is our enemy and not our friend. Therefore, we're not to love it. He tries to convince us it's our friend, but it's our enemy, and we're not to love it. Why? Well, I I don't think it takes a whole lot of time to figure out why it's our enemy. To love the world as our friend is highly unreasonable. I mean, it makes no sense. If nothing else, it's just foolish. If we got everything that this world has to offer us, it will not satisfy our souls. If we had all the money, all the goods, Solomon tried it out. Nothing he held back from himself. What's he say? You know what he said when it was all said and done. It's vanity. It's empty. All is vanity. It's so unreasonable, it's so foolish to think that the world and what it offers us by way of temptations is our friend. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. To love this world and the things of the world is an absolute waste of our time. It's so inane. It's ridiculous. To live like the world is our friend is also scandalous. When Christians act like men of the world, then their love for the world and the things of the world give the appearance to the world that Christianity is a farce. It's all a joke. Well, look at them. They're just going after the things that we go after. 
They say it's all different, but they're living like us. It can't be real. It can't be genuine. They're just hypocrites. They're putting on a show. And that is scandalous when Christians are loving the world as if it's a friend. To love the world is also to practice idolatry. We make idols and gods and set them up in the face of the one and true living God, our God, when we love the world. To view this world as our friend is also dangerous. We set ourselves going down a path that will take us away from God, away from holiness. We'll become more and more acquainted with the ways of the world than we will be acquainted with God. We'll know more about its habits and its ways and its treasures and pleasures than we will about the treasures and pleasures of the Lord. And that is dangerous. Finally, to view this world as our friend is destructive. It will destroy our godliness. It will destroy our testimony. It will destroy our happiness. It will destroy our ability to glorify God as long as we are treating this world as if it is our friend. It just makes life a mess for the child of God. How do we deal with that tempter when he comes? How do we overcome? You stick around after lunch and we'll find out. God read his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, in Jesus Christ's name, we return thanks for thy word. Lord, it is a convicting word. It searches our hearts and we want it to do that. We would be so foolish not to want thee to search out our ways. We all, Lord, know what it's like to be tempted and to fall prey to temptation. But thou dost also know we hate it. We grieve when we fall. We grieve when we find out that we have treated the world as if it's our friend. So, Lord, after bringing us to the light of thy truth that reveals this, we pray for light in the afternoon meeting that will show us how we overcome. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.